Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? Happy Father's Day. Let's go. Romans chapter 4 is where we left off a couple weeks ago. Last week, Ruben Moyana, one of our elders, preached a standalone message on Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, which was fantastic. And if you missed it, I'd love for you to find it on the website and listen to it and be just drenched with the glory of Christ in that text. And this morning, we find ourselves back in Romans that we've been journeying through since January that we're going to stay in until we finish all 16 chapters. And we find ourselves at verse 16 of Romans chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 16 through 21, but today we're going to stare particularly at verses 16 and 17, which I think has just a richness, a a doctrinal truth for us that Paul, I think, inspired by the Holy Spirit, intends for us to stake our lives on. And so uh, I want us to zero in on, on that truth, and it's this truth about how God how he saves people, what, what salvation is. So as you're, as you're finding Romans chapter 4, and, and by the way, if you don't have a Bible, use one of the ones that you can find in the rack in front of you. You can keep that Bible as our gift to you if you don't have a Bible, and we'd love for you to follow along. Listen to this testimony. We don't have it on the screen, but I just want you to, as you're settling in, to listen to this testimony from a Christian about how he came to faith in Christ as he reflected back on his life about what was behind his salvation. He writes this, when I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. I do not think that the young convert is at first aware of this. I can recall the very day and hour when I first received those truths in my own soul, when they were, as John Bunyan says, burnt into my heart as with a hot iron. And I can recollect how I felt that I had grown on a sudden from a babe into a man, that I had made progress in scriptural knowledge through having found once for all the clue to the truth of God. One weeknight, when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon, for I did not believe it. Now, I don't commend that portion of it. I hope that you will be believing what I have to say. The thought struck me. How did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought Him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I, but then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so then in a moment? I saw that God was at the bottom of it all that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up upon, up to me, and from that doctrine I have not par- departed to this day, and I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly 
to God. Well, that was written by an obscure British pastor named Charles Haddon Spurgeon back in the <laughs> late 1800s. And I think that what Spurgeon is hitting upon is what our text, as we stare at it and get to the bottom of it, is all about. That God is at the bottom of it all. Let me read Romans chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. If you're joining us for the first time, we've been working through Romans. You may be a little bit confused as to the context, but Lord willing, as we work through, you'll, you'll get your bearings and understand where we are and what this letter is saying. Paul writes, that is why it, and I think the it that he's referring to is salvation and all of its promises, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand this, this text. Lord, um, what a privilege to open your word. We, I, we want to humble ourselves beneath it. It's true, it's inspired, it's breathed out by you. It's without air. It has all authority. And your Holy Spirit who authored it uses it to accomplish your sovereign, eternal will. Do that this morning, I pray, in the lives of every person in here, wherever they may be, whether they're unbelievers or whether they've been trusting in you. Lord, do your will. Do your work in our hearts. Encourage us. Convict us. Slay us. Give us life. Give us hope. May we stake our lives on the truths that are in this passage, all for the glory of your name and for our good. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So a little bit of context up to this point. Romans is a letter written to the Roman church where Paul the apostle is writing to a group of people, both Jews who have converted to Christ, Jewish Christians, and Gentiles, citizens of the Roman Empire from other races that have trusted in Christ. It's a church in the city of Rome, which was the capital of the known world at that time, under great, really beginning to be under great persecution. And Paul is writing really his, his Magna Carta, this great 
letter that becomes his fullest explanation of the truth of the gospel and the Christian life. And one of the reasons that he's doing this is to to bring unity between these two factions in the Roman church, the Jews who were Christians, who had trusted in Christ, and these Gentiles who were at odds with one another, who were suspicious of one another. And Paul is wanting to do a kind of cannonball in the deep end to make such a fuss about the glory of God and to spin out all of the implications of the gospel and the life of all people that it would bring unity in the local church. And then he really wanted the Roman church to understand the gospel because he saw himself going to Rome and to eventually use it as a base of operations by which he would spread the gospel all throughout the known world at the time. And he begins the letter by really establishing this universal truth that all people, whether they were the Jews in the Old Testament, who God had special designs and purposes for, or whether it was just Gentiles, people that were not Jewish. So Jews and Gentiles, that's encompassing all people. All people, Paul's argument is in the first couple of chapters of Romans, stand equally guilty and unable to make themselves right before a holy God. In fact, he says, the wrath of God has been revealed and is barreling down on all people from every tribe, every tongue, every ethnicity, Jew, Gentile, that's everybody. All of us, whether we grew up in a religious home or a non-religious home, regardless of what culture we came from, we all stand on equal footing before a holy God that we can do nothing in and of ourselves to commend ourselves to. But, and it takes a glorious turn in Romans chapter 3, God has provided his son, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son of God, fully God, fully man, always existing. He sent him to become a man in the fullness of time, according to his great plan, to remain fully God as he always has been, to be, but to become fully Fully, to remain fully God, but to become fully man. So 100% God, 100% man, Jesus becomes a man and lives a perfect life where all people, Jews and Gentiles, have rebelled against God. Jesus, in his humanity, completely obeys God and is holy and perfect and sinless. And then God puts his own son forward, Jesus, the perfect God-man, as a propitiation. It's a fancy, important biblical word that means a wrath-absorbing sacrifice that extinguishes God's holiness and justice and turns it into God's favor and grace. He puts Jesus forward to be a substitute for all those, whether Jews or Gentiles, who would believe and put their hope for their right standing with their creator God in what Jesus has done, how he has lived in his righteousness, in his life, and in his victory in his resurrection, and not in their own merit. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what Romans is all about, and that's the answer to the human predicament of Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2 that Paul leads us to and says Jesus has been put forward. And now, in chapter 4, he says that this, this salvation, this grace of God that he has worked through his Son is to be received by faith, not by works, not by us doing things to commend ourselves to God, but this whole plan of God is to be received, this salvation, this glorious 
this glorious grace is to be received by faith. And this would have been shocking to Jewish ears who would have thought that they were right by, with God because of their attempts to abide according to the law or maybe according to their circumcision or some other act of obedience that they had tried to accomplish in their life. This would have been scandalous news to them. And Paul is saying in Romans that no, it's always been through faith in God. And primarily now, as it's been revealed, faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul then, to prove it to the Jews who might have been scandalized by this, by this grace, he uses Abraham, who is this father of the Jews, this pinnacle figure of the Old Testament, and says that even Abraham, this man that we consider to be so righteous, even he was not saved by his works, but he was saved by faith. This man Abraham that was wandering around in the desert, who did not know God, who was lost in sin like every other human, God came to him, divinely showed up, and said, Abraham, you're my man. Gave Abraham faith, gave him eyes to see and ears to hear his word. And Abraham, because of what God did in him, believed God. And so now, Paul is using Abraham as a kind of test case to say that if anybody could have been saved by their righteousness in the Old Testament, it would have been our man Abe. But even Abe was saved not by works, but by faith. And now Paul is going to zero in on this relationship between faith and grace and its implications in the human life and where it comes from. So let me read verses 16 and 17 again, and then we're going to look at two truths that I think these two verses show us about the Christian life. Verses 16 and 17. That is why it, and I think the it that Paul is referring to again there, I said this when I read it at the beginning, is that it refers to salvation and the inheritance that comes with salvation. In other words, all that is gained by trusting in Jesus. That is why it, right standing with a holy God and the inheritance that makes us heirs of the world as we looked at two weeks ago, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. That's quoting Genesis 17, where God's speaking to Abraham. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So remember, God promised to Abraham in Genesis that I'm going to take you and your wife, Sarah, and I'm going to give you a son, and it's going to come through your wife, Sarah. When God originally said that to Abraham, he was probably in his mid-70s. Sarah was in her, you know, mid-60s. And that's ah, unlikely, but, you know, at that point, Abraham might be thinking, ah, maybe, 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 you know, Sarah can still have a baby, and maybe she can still get pregnant. But God lets about 25 years go between when he first says that to Abraham and when this son Isaac actually is conceived to illustrate the point that it was God doing this. It's God who brings life out of a 100-year-old man and a 99-year-old woman. And that is a kind of picture of how God brings salvation or life to any of us by 
miraculous grace. So there's two points that I want us to think as we look at these two verses. One is that salvation, right standing, eternity with God, salvation depends on faith which comes by grace. So verse 16, it says that is why it, salvation, depends on faith. And now for really the first time in Romans, Paul is going to link faith and grace together in a central way. And he says that this faith comes, it depends on faith, in order that, so that the promise that God made to Abraham, that he would be the father of a multitude of people who trust in God, may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all those that are his offspring. In other words, those who trust in Christ, not his physical descent. And so what's Paul's point here? I think Paul's point that he's drawing out, that he's, he's getting down to the bottom of salvation as we read this testimony early, earlier from Spurgeon, is that there is a direct link between faith and grace. Up to this point, Paul has been hammering home the truth that we are made right with God or we are justified with God through faith. But here he says that not only does it depend on faith, but that faith rests on grace. And so the conclusion is, is that there is a clear link between faith and grace. And I think the reason Paul is wanting to, to spell this out for his hearers and for us, and he's going to really get into it in the coming chapters, is because we may be tempted if we just hear the great truth that salvation is by faith and not by works, we may be tempted if we don't understand the nature of faith to subconsciously perceive faith is something that we bring to the table. But Paul is going to smash that. The scriptures will smash that for us. And it's wanting us to see that even the faith that we bring to the table comes from, issues from, rests upon, depends on God's initiating grace. So where do we see that in the scriptures? Because he just gives us one line here. I think we see it clearest in Ephesians chapter 2. So let me read Ephesians 2. If you've been around Crosspoint for a long time, you are, Lord willing, hopefully very familiar with Ephesians 2. I think, I think it's one of the clearest and most understandable explanations of salvation and how God works salvation in all peoples in the whole Bible, and it's 10 verses that are just a kind of condensed, beautiful, thorough explanation. Let me read Ephesians chapter 2. This is Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, and he's explaining to them this link. Well, he's explaining to them really salvation, but he's explaining to them this link very centrally between faith and grace, and grace and faith. He says in verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So let's, let's pause there and just consider a few things that Paul is saying. He's saying that all people, we, we might be tempted to think that he's just speaking to the Ephesians, 
But then he says, you're like everybody else, like all mankind who by nature are children of wrath. And he says something very stinging about all of us there. He says that we are by our nature dead in our trespasses. Now, what does this mean? This, I think, means that we all in this room are, are very much alive. And if we're Christians, even before we came to Christ to understand him, we were alive, we were breathing, we had thoughts, uh, desires, intentions, uh, a heart, a will of our own that we could exercise. But we, the Bible is very clear, were by our nature dead. What does that mean? It means that we are spiritually unable to do anything savingly to commend ourselves to a holy God. Now this is, this is the starting point for all humanity. Now next week we're going to do a child dedication and I'm going to get this harsh truth out before we have a bunch of babies up here with grandmas taking pictures giving me, you know, side eye evil looks if I say this. Well, I'll say it next week too. Grandma can just deal with it. But babies are not born innocent or neutral. They, they, they may be born stinking cute. But babies, and all of us were once babies, are born, according to this text, dead. Spiritually dead. Spiritually unable. The theologians in the Reformation called this total depravity. And we don't think of ourselves as depraved. We think of some, you know, some crazy criminal or terrorist as depraved. When we see that, when, when the Bible, when the, dark, the truth of the Bible speaks about us being totally depraved, it's not to say that we are as bad as we could be. It's to say that every part of our humanity has been so tainted by sin that we are completely unable, we are dead in our ability to do anything to commend ourselves to God. And that's the way all people are born. That's the starting point for all humanity after the fall. After, you know, people talk about the good old days. The good old days, you got to go back to Genesis 2 before you get to the good old days. Because (laughs) since Genesis 3, it's been a downhill slide for all of humanity. And God, through his grace sent his son Jesus to rescue a people out of that downhill slide. And since then, we have had two escalators, one continuing its downward slope, that's humanity, and one ascending in a never-ending, guaranteed path to glory with God, and that's his people. That's what Augustine, the old early church father, said, that there's always two cities, the city of man, which is lost, and the city of God, which he has redeemed, which he will bring to himself. And so all people are unable to do anything savingly right. And that's where we find ourselves. But we get to verse 4. And what does Paul say in Ephesians 2 verse 4? But God, if you're an underliner or a highlighter, there's not a better place to like mark up. And some of you do it so much that actually the part that stands out on your page is the part that you haven't highlighted. So, I mean, which is awesome. I'm not dogging you on that. I'm just saying that's a place to highlight or underline right there. But God, being rich in mercy 
because of the great love with which he loved us, listen to this, verse 5, even when we were dead, spiritually unable, not able to do anything to commend ourselves to God, rightly deserving the wrath of God as Paul has painted for us in Romans 1 and 2, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive (laughs) together with Christ. By, here's our word, grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that, verse 7, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Don't have time to go down this rabbit trail, but verses verse 6 and 7 are telling us that our salvation was never meant to dead end on us, but it was meant to be put on display to the world so that through us, God might get glory. By the way, that's why God, I believe, instituted one of the reasons, not the only reason, that God institutes this beautiful picture of salvation, baptism in the New Testament. And we're going to see in just a moment a brother from Crosspoint be baptized and part of the reason of baptism to be done publicly to be done in front of the church and an onlooking world is to put on display the immeasurable grace of Christ in the life of a person who is dead but God has now made alive for by verse 8 grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. So remember we started out thinking, well, maybe we've been talking about justification by faith for so long that maybe we might unwittingly be tempted to think that, yeah, I realize I'm not saved by what I do, but if I don't understand the origins or the nature of faith and how it's connected to grace, I might be tempted to think that faith is something that I contribute to salvation. It's my part that activates my salvation. And Paul smashes that. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It, referring to faith, is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So back to our truth from Romans 6, 4, 16. Salvation, the Holy Spirit intends for us to see, I believe, depends on faith. But let's examine the nature of faith. Faith isn't our work. Faith comes by grace. All of this is done in order that the promise may rest on grace. Faith is not our work. How can people who are spiritually dead work anything? They're unable But grace comes first, and grace awakens, grace enables, grace makes alive. Grace, listen to this word, it's not a common word, but it's an important word. Grace regenerates. Grace regenerates, that means takes that which is dead and makes it alive. And when grace does that, it brings with it the gift of faith. That this now regenerated, made alive, enabled, awakened heart is now able to freely exercise. Listen to how uh, John Piper puts it in his really helpful book called Finally Alive, which is just a short little book on salvation. 
It's one of my favorite Piper books. He says, listen to this, and he's going to help us see the relationship between faith and grace. He says, your involvement in the event of the new birth, that's salvation, you, you must be born again, your involvement in the event of the new birth is to exercise faith. See, it's nobody saved by faith. That's, that's very clear. Faith in the crucified and risen Son of God, Jesus Christ, as the Savior and Lord and treasure of your life. So it's not that we're just sort of generally having faith in God. We're having faith in Christ and his perfect life and his victorious resurrection. The answer continues like this, Piper says. Your act of believing and God's act of begetting Begetting, just an old English word meaning bring about. God's act of begetting are simultaneous. He does the begetting and you do the believing at the same point. And this is very important. His doing is the decisive cause of your doing. His begetting is the decisive cause of your believing. If you have a hard time, he goes on, this is a helpful picture. I was helped by this years ago when I read it. If you have a hard time thinking of one thing causing another if they are simultaneous, think of fire and heat or fire and light. The instant there is fire, there is heat. The instant there is fire, there is light. But we would not say that the heat caused the fire or the light caused the fire. We say that the fire caused the heat and the light. So do you see that? And he goes on to say that likewise, faith does not cause us to be born again. Rather, being born again... Grace, God making us alive, God acting first on us, is what causes faith. Do you see that? Friends, seeing that is so important. Why is seeing that so important? Because of what Paul says next in verse 16, back to Romans 4. He says it depends on faith, which rests on grace. And because it rests on grace and not on our faith, but God's prior grace, it can be guaranteed. <laughs> guaranteed to all of his offspring. Because sometimes our faith wavers, right? Sometimes I feel kind of strong and vigorous and ready to go tackle the world for Jesus. And other times I want to crawl under the bed and eat Cheetos until Jesus comes. And if it depended on if the promise, if the inheritance, if right standing with God depended on my faith, which feels so subjective all the time, it wouldn't feel very guaranteed. But there's actually, oh friends, get this. There's actually, those of you that have trouble with assurance, those of you that wrestle with doubt, get this. There's actually something underneath our faith that has caused our faith, and it is the sovereign, free grace of God that actually gives and produces faith. That's truth number one. Truth number two, I think, just builds on that. 
And as a kind of object lesson of that, lest we had any doubt. And truth number two is this, that God gives life to the dead and creates out of nothing. Let me read verse 17 again, and that's where I get this truth from. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So remember the context. Paul is using Abraham's life and his promise to Abraham to have offspring that we learned ultimately weren't the physical descendants of Abraham, but the spiritual descendants of Abraham, those who have faith in God in the Old Testament. Now that shadow of Old Testament faith in God has become the reality of faith in his son Jesus. Paul is saying here contextually that it seemed like there was no way that the promise to Abraham could be fulfilled because he was about 100 and his wife was in her late 90s and her womb was dead and Abraham was shriveled up over in the corner and it seemed like the situation was dead and hopeless, but God, but God called life from the dead and brought into existence things that did not exist. Paul is using the physical example of the hopelessness of Abraham and Sarah's ability to actually conceive a child to become a kind of picture of how God brings salvation in anybody's life. And the way God does that is he doesn't look for potential he doesn't come alongside somebody who shows, you know, some, some, some merit, somebody that's kind of worked their way up. He, he's not the, the, this, this idea of American ideology that God helps those who helps themselves comes straight from the pit of hell. Because I read out of Ephesians 2 that nobody can help themselves. And God gives life to the dead and creates out of nothing. He did that at the beginning of time. We see this doctrine of God creating out of nothing in creation in Genesis 1. There was, just consider that. I mean, there's some hard truths to uh, handle in the Bible. And may, maybe this truth about how God must act first on you, how God's grace is sovereign and free and initiates and gives you. Maybe the whole idea of how you must be made alive before you even have faith, maybe that's just, maybe that's sort of controversial to you. And I, I get it. You may need to wrestle with that for a while. I wrestled with that for several years before I really embraced it. I think it's biblical. But just consider this, that in eternity past, there was nothing. <laughs> and God created everything out of nothing. What, what, what was, consider this, this will blow your mind. God has no beginning. God didn't start. And, and we fuss and quibble over whether or not God is free to do whatever he wants with his creation. I mean, come on. Paul's point is that God creates 
everything out of nothing. He did this in Genesis 1 with creation, and he does this in our hearts. The salvation of any of God's people is kind of like a mini personal creation. It's a recreation. There was nothing there. There was no good work that could commend us to God. There was no faith. There was no potential. There was no good 40 time. And God, out of nothing, out of death, produces life. And that life has faith. And that faith sees as its object the beauty of Christ and apprehends it. How does he bring this life? He calls it into existence. We'll earlier on read from John chapter 11 and the story of Lazarus' resurrection. And he stopped at verse 27, and I want us to pick up at verse 28 to finish the story that we heard earlier about how Lazarus, this friend of Jesus, was brought to life. And I think Lazarus and his resurrection, if you've never heard the story, you're about to hear the rest of it, is not just meant to be a picture of Jesus's authority over physical life, but I think this physical picture of a man who is dead, who's about to come back to life, is a spiritual case study of how God, through Christ, saves all people. And so, picking up where we left off in verse 28, remember, there's this brother of Mary and Martha who was a good friend of Jesus. He's sick. Jesus takes his own sweet time to get to him. Sisters are upset. He encourages Martha that he's the resurrection of, and the life, and anyone who believes in him shall not die, but shall live forever. And in verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher, meaning Jesus, is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus, who had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Mary and Martha had met him, when the Jews who were with her in the house, when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Don't have time to spend too much time. But that's just fascinating. We read earlier in John 11 that Jesus knew that Lazarus was going to die and in fact was setting all of that up to bring him back to life to be this great display Jesus, the author of life that we read about in Colossians 1 that Reuben preached on last week. Jesus, the eternal son of God through whom everything that was made that was made. Jesus, who knows the future, who's the author of the future, knows that he's about to bring Lazarus back from the dead, and yet he weeps. So we have this picture of a God who is transcendent and holy over and in control of time, and a God who's in time and feels, feels our... Friends, I don't know what your picture of God is, but it's not one of somebody who's impatient and angry at you because of your doubt or your emotions or your pain. It's a God who is above it all, but in it all. And Jesus wept. Isn't that 
Isn't that amazing? Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could, he not, who, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take the stone away. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. Those of you that have a King James Bible, say it with me. He stinketh, right. For he has been dead four days. And why is that in the Bible? Just to hammer home the point that he was really dead. This wasn't like some coma that he was in. He was dead. His flesh was decomposing. That's the spiritual state of every person. Our spiritual flesh is decomposing. And decomposing flesh can't do anything. There's no cream, there's no Neutrogena product at the pharmacy that can reverse decomposing spiritual flesh. He's been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I say this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, verse 43, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And I've heard old commentaries say that he had to say Lazarus because if he would have just shouted, come out to the dead, everybody would have got up from that mug. <laughs> Lazarus, come out. The man who died came out. His hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Friends, Lazarus didn't have faith. Lazarus was decomposing in death. And the good news of the gospel is that when Jesus came to Lazarus' tomb, even though he was dead, Jesus called and the call created what God intended and brought life. And Lazarus, now because he was made alive, was enabled to exercise the gift of faith that came with his regeneration. And Jesus appeared to him so worthy, so irresistible, so altogether lovely that the new heart that he had because God recreated it had new desires that desired to obey Jesus and he got up. God gives life to the dead and creates out of nothing. Two quick applications of this truth. And let's not just let this be kind of doctrine that floats around. See, that's a dangerous place to be as a Christian, somebody who knows doctrine and yet isn't moved by it. That's, a, that's actually a really, really dangerous place to be. This is what um, John Calvin, he was the great theologian of the Protestant Reformation. He, has, he wrote a whole bunch, the Institutes of the Christian Religion. And there's a little portion of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, which was like Calvin's 
you know, big theological work that he worked on throughout his life and updated. They've spliced off a few chapters of that, and it's called A Little Book on the Christian Life. I, I would just highly commend this to you. You may think of Calvin as like some stoic French cat with a beard who's angry and mean looking, because that's the way all the paintings of him are. But his, his writing is wonderfully easy, it's very readable, and it's so applicable, and it, it, it's just it's so helpful. And this is what Calvin says about, about doctrine. He says, for true doctrine, and we've been really dwelling on doctrine right now, kind of the precise nature of grace and faith. He says, true doctrine is not a matter of the tongue, but of life. Neither is Christian doctrine grasped only by the intellect and memory, as truth is grasped in other fields of study. Rather, doctrine is rightly received, listen to this, when it takes possession of the entire soul and finds a dwelling place and shelter in the most intimate affections of the heart. But in order for doctrine to be fruitful to us, it must overflow into our hearts, spread into our daily routines, and truly transform us within So let's not let this glorious truth of the sovereign grace of God that gives life to the dead and creates out of nothing be a mere category of doctrine for us. What a shame that would be. What a shame that would be. In fact, I I, I would pray that, that God wouldn't leave us into just apprehending some set of truths lest it come into our lives, lest we be like the Pharisees who knew the Bible backwards and forwards, but it didn't warm and melt their hearts. And so two brief thoughts. How do we apply this? How, what are the implications in our lives? When we see this grace of God that gives faith, that everything rests on God's grace, and therefore salvation is guaranteed to all of his offspring. One, I think it enables us to live more God-centered, worshipful lives, that we view life through the prism of God's grace. Everything is colored by the magnificent glory of God and his grace in our lives. It becomes the central defining thing. It becomes the hub in every area of our life as a mere spoke off of the hub of God's glorious grace. It, it crushes us and recreates us and, and orients us in a Godward posture for the rest of our lives. What does this look like practically? I think it means that it just overflows in the way we speak about the Christian life to others. It, we speak biblically about it. God is not spoken of merely as a dispenser of earthly blessings. You know, like athletes who are obviously living reckless lives who, because they win some big game at the interview at the end, say, oh, the man upstairs helped us. And then all these little weak little Christians run off and are excited because some Christian or because some athlete who is ridiculously far from God just used God as a kind of little token cultural, cultural reference. But friends, there, there, there are, some of us may be prone to live like that. Sometimes I'm prone to live like that. I have this category of doctrine, and I say, okay, let me put that on the shelf, and then let me go about my life. But if we see this, and then we dwell on this, and we're reminded of this, it smashes us and rebuilds us and reorients us so that we can interpret all of life according to the grace of God and his unfolding plan that he guarantees will come to pass. 
It allows us to interpret life and evil and injustice and disappointments and sickness and cancer and sin and everything in between in the terms of a God who works all things together for the good of those who he has guaranteed he will bring safely home. Two, and that first one was northward, it was vertical. This next one, final one, is horizontal. It allows us to live towards others with humility and hope. I mean, how, how can we dwell on this truth about how, how can we consider, because friends, we are, all, we are all in various different ways, we are all Lazaruses. Whether you are like my wife who grew up in a Christian home with believing parents who cannot remember the day that she trusted in Jesus, or whether you're like me who lived far from God, and I can remember the day that I first heard the gospel. It was March 16, 1989. And it was the first time that I heard the gospel, and God awakened my mind to the gospel, and some point thereafter I believed, regardless whether you're a good little church kid or whether you're some rampant felon, all of us have Lazarus' story, whether you are four years old or 40 years old. A good little kid who grows up in the church is no more in and of themselves, no less lost than somebody who's lived far from God for decades because the miracle of conversion, the miracle of bringing a heart that was born dead to life is just as miraculous, whatever the backdrop. Who can look at the story of Lazarus who can read Ephesians 2? Who can see that rightly? Be humbled by it and then look at knuckleheads around us down the end of our nose and say, nah, that guy doesn't deserve God's grace. That guy really gets underneath my skin. <laughs> who, who can be disappointed with humanity when they see the truth of sin rightly? Who can be hopeless in the face of circumstances that seem where there is no hope when we see that that's exactly how God operates? It should cause us to swell with humility and gentleness and hope towards people that get under our skin that we perceive to be far from God. And it should put steel in our spines that God has guaranteed that he will bring all of his safely home. I'm going to pray. Some of you have never realized this before, and God may be opening your heart. How do you think you might have explained how to become a Christian to Lazarus? Hey, Lazarus. Uh, sign up for this, repeat this prayer after me, raise your hand, come down, do this, blah, blah, blah. I know all those things, I'm not dogging it. Those things can be helpful. But how did Lazarus behold Christ? Jesus came to him, initiated grace, made him alive, gave him what he needed. And Lazarus could not help but look away from himself and to Jesus. Friends, that may be you right now. If you do not know the Lord and that has become clear to you today, I'm not asking you to do something. I'm asking you to believe, to put your hope in 
Jesus, to trust in him, to believe, to have faith in him, to see that he has bore God's wrath for you, and that is your only hope. And if you are seeing that and believing that, friends, that, I believe, is evidence that God has worked something in you that you can't produce. What do babies do when they come out of the womb? I've been in the room four times when it's happened. They get slapped, I don't even know if that's real or not, and they breathe. Right now, friends, the fact that you're even believing means that God has given you something that you can't breathe. Bring on your own, so believe, believe, breathe, turn from your sin, trust in Jesus, ask him to forgive you, behold him, love him, wrap your arms around him. Don't leave this room without talking to somebody. Let somebody be kind of like a midwife to clean you up. Even Lazarus needed the grave clothes taken off of him. You can't just believe and go on about your secret life. You need to have Christians around you who can take the grave clothes off of you. But right now, believe. And dear Christian, oh friends, let your heart be melted. Let arrogance die. Let let hopelessness die. Let confidence rise. Let trust rise. Let steel be formed in our spines. Let's lock our arms, brace our knees, and live this life. Because you know what? Tuesday's coming. Thursday's coming. Temptation's coming. And we need to fight that, not with our own grit, but with the grace of the gospel that God provides. Let's pray. Father, help us. I, I, need, I need this. I need this. My faith is so often so weak. But I thank you, Lord, that I am not saved by the strength of my faith, but by the strength of the object of my faith, which is Jesus. And you have made that all happen by grace. Lord, infuse us with the glory of the gospel. Melt our hearts. In Jesus' name.